know people in Fort McMurray. Some of us even know people who've lost their homes. Their life is not going to be the same again. Lord, I pray tonight that you would show mercy to our sister city, Father. That you would, Lord, you're the one who controls the weather, and I pray tonight that you would hear our cry for mercy. Lord, that you would, you know, adjust the temperatures, that they would drop, Father, that there would be rain that would fall upon our, this, this beautiful region of our province, Lord. I've had the privilege of living there. And so I pray, Lord, that you would show mercy, not only to them, but to us as a nation, oh God. Lord, because this is a, a very uh, a reminder, Father, of how fragile life is, how quickly everything that we maybe have labored for can be taken from us. And so, Lord, help us to have the right priorities in life. Help us to understand the things we need to focus upon, Lord. And I just ask, Lord, that you would help these individuals begin to repair and rebuild their lives. But, Lord, I pray that you would be included in that rebuilding process. That, Lord, many would turn to you, Father, and they would build their life on a rock. You are the rock. You are the stability that helps us even in times of trouble in times of uncertainty, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name, and God's people say, amen. You may be seated. So I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus. I know a few weeks ago I was preaching a sermon. I didn't finish it. Everyone goes, Pastor, can you finish that message? I'll, yeah, I'll get to it. Uh, it. You know, it may take a month, but I'll get there. All right, so I want us to look at the book of Titus, because today is Mother's Day, and our hearts are locked, at least mine is focused that way, and I've thought a lot about this, this whole celebration that we have called Mother's Day, and rightfully we should honor and celebrate our mothers. George Schwab writes in his book, Right in Their Own Eyes, it's, uh, it's a book really written by an Old Testament scholar, and he's trying to you know, focus in on the theme of the book of Judges. How many have ever read the book of Judges? This is from the Bible, seventh book in the Old Testament. Just raise your hand. I'm just curious. How many have read the book? Oh, great, quite a few of you. Awesome. Some of you have never read the book. Let me just give you a heads up. When you read the book of Judges, it's a tough read, and I'll tell you why, because a lot of bad decisions, and bad decisions always lead to pain and heartache, and the Bible brings that out, because really, you know, you're either doing what's right in the eyes of God, or you're doing what's right in your own eyes, okay? It's only one of two options. You know, we try to make it seem like there's more than that. Now, the, now what we think is right in our own eyes, that may, that may be quite varied by different people. But the point is this. There's something that God says is right, and there's something that we think, well, I want to do what I want to do. And, uh, and, it, and if it's different than what God wants us to do, it has negative consequences. So George Schwab, in his book, he says this. this um, he's, he's basically saying... Uh, The book of Judges is about God forging for himself a community of worshipers in a time when people did that which was right in their own eyes. How many say this is probably a time we're living in? People generally are just doing their own thing, and yet God is working at trying to forge a community. And that's what the church is. It's actually God's community. He's forging this. He's working at it in spite of all of the challenges that are coming against this happening. And then he says this. This indictment is not about the pagan nations that surround Israel. It's actually about Israel itself. You know, Israel was God's covenant people. And the question is, can it be said that we live in such an age today? In other words, is God's people, just like Israel in the Old Testament was God's covenant people, 
They were the ones who, you know, God had revealed himself to them. God had given them a law to live by, and yet they were disregarding God and beginning to embrace the gods of the other nations around them. There was a synergism that was happening. They were embracing. They, they, they didn't stop believing in Yahweh, but they, they took on all of these other ideas, and they created, you know, actually a distorted understanding of who God is. And by the way, I really see this in our culture today. A lot of Christians, we, we, you know, if we don't really know the Bible well, we really don't have a correct understanding of who God is. We, we develop a distorted understanding, and we all think that God is kind of like ourselves. And so when, we, when God does something that is unlike what we would do, we would just go, well, I just can't believe in a God like that. You see, we have a problem with that because you know, we, we want to make God in our own image. And yet what God is trying to do is help us as finite human beings begin to be transformed and become like him. And we actually become the better us. Can I say it that way? You know, it's not that God doesn't think we're lovable, it's just that there's things in our lives that are not so likable. And he wants to transform these things and make us a better person. He wants to make us the person that God designed us to become, which is a far more exciting element in our life. And then he goes on to point out, this George Schwab in his book, all of the immorality and the greed and the indifference to the things of God. And eventually we see how these things have a negative impact in their life. And I've said this for years that, you know, so often in Canada, we have been so blessed by God. We really have. But we've been distracted by this good life. And that actually many times keeps us from the best life. It's the life that relates to God and gets to know God. We have, the, we have the opportunity to do that, but we don't always avail ourselves. We don't always take advantage of that opportunity to really get to know who God is. Now, I've served in pastoral ministry for over 30 years. It's probably closer to 35 years. That's a little while, right? And I can honestly say this, and I'm gonna kind of pick on some of you that are a little bit older. Some of you are even older than I am. So I'm gonna ask some questions tonight, and you're gonna, you're gonna tell me if I'm out to lunch or not, okay? Because you've been, you know, you're, you're fellow observers. Can I ask a question? Has life, if you're like, you know, 60 plus, has life changed very dramatically in the space of when you were a young person to today? Besides technology, has it changed a lot? Yeah, it really has, hasn't it? And you can see these changes that are transpiring all the time. And, uh, you know, probably one of the most pronounced changes that I've noticed is in the context of family. You know, I see more broken families today than I've ever had before. How many can say, yeah, that's true? I, you know, if you're a little bit older, can you see it? You know, family life is just really disintegrating. People are having a hard time getting along. You know, we have a lot of single mothers trying to raise children. I'm not, that's not a criticism. I'm just saying that's the observed reality, right? You know, people are having a hard time relating to each other. It's really difficult. When we hear somebody being married for 50 years, we all stand up and applaud them. Like, this is, this is abnormal, right? Come on, isn't that true? We don't see it. I mean, you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, a lot of people don't even believe in marriage today because people don't know if they can trust another person. They don't even know if they can make the commitment to another person. And so we're afraid to do that. And so many people just live together because we're afraid to make those, you know, lifetime commitments. And, and uh, you know, so we're trying to do things, you know, trying to make life work. We're struggling because of these brokenness in our relationships. Do you know, I know that there's a lot of reasons why people get divorced. A lot of people don't even want divorce to happen in their lives. They, they were opposed to it. But it happened to them anyway. So though there's a pain of divorce, and it's great, the social stigma of divorce now 
is not as great as it once was. Now you that are older, is that true? There was a tremendous stigma. When you were divorced before, that was a bad thing. You know, today, that's just accepted. People are more accepting of this today. I'm not saying that that's good or bad. I'm just telling you what I'm observing. So how many can say, Pastor, I'm observing the same things? Anybody else could say, yeah, I'm observing these similar things that you're talking about. Broken relationships, families struggling, people are divorced. You know, I'm not, I'm not making judgments on if it's good or it's bad. I'm just stating that what, I'm, what I'm seeing. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, give up very quickly in their relationships. Isn't that true? Uh, let, me, let me give you an example. Uh, there were some surveys done. In one survey, couples who chose to struggle through the early years of marital adjustment and difficulty found greater happiness afterwards. You know, how many think that's kind of fascinating? In other words, sometimes, well, not sometimes, it is hard work to try to work through the issues in our life. You know, we think it's easier to walk away, but it's actually, in the long run, more difficult to walk away. Initially, it's easier, but in the end, it's, it's far more painful. As a matter of fact, they found out that 80% in the survey were happier after working through their issues, and 72% were more successful on their jobs and with their children. In other words, the children, and they know this for a fact, and what I mean is, who's they? People who have studied this, people who are not even necessarily Christians have studied the effects of divorce on families and what happens to children. Children are crushed. They're devastated. And they've done studies now, you know, that are 25. They've, they've tracked families for 25, 30, 40 years after their parents were divorced and found some of the sense of brokenness in their lives. The children, okay? That's an amazing thing. So what we're saying is when God designed, first of all, the plan to have a husband and a wife together and to have children come into this family, God had a reason for doing it. Number one reason, so that it could reflect the relationship that he has with us. Marriage is the closest thing that reflects our relationship with God. I already said that earlier, didn't I? From the book of Ephesians. That's important to God. So if, if God has an adversary called Satan, Satan is trying to destroy this image of who God is. He's trying to destroy, the Bible says, he's a, he's, a, he's a liar, and he's trying to destroy the people God loves the most, and that's you and me. He's out to destroy our lives. He's out to destroy your families. He's out to destroy our children. We need to understand this. We need to understand that there's a battle going on for families today. That's the point I'm driving at. How many would say, Pastor, we see it. We get it. We understand what you're talking about. You know, we're not making judgments about it. We're just stating facts about it. This is the reality. Now, how about all the people who've prayed and struggled? God, please do something. And some of you have prayed this prayer. And you know what? Often when God answers, at first, it may seem like he's not doing anything and he almost seems indifferent to your prayer. Anybody have that experience? Where you've prayed and prayed and God, you just seem like, God, you're not answering what I'm asking. You know, you're just not doing what I'm telling you to do. Now even today, 
you know, I'm praying for Fort McMurray. I'm telling God to change the weather. Did you catch that I'm doing that? Now, how many know God doesn't have to listen to what I'm telling him to do? How many have got that figured out? He could say, you know, Paul, I'm not going to do what you're asking. I have another plan. I go, well, it doesn't look good to me, God. And so we can have this conversation with God, and we can say, hey, I don't think you're doing the right thing, God. Let me point out to you these reasons why you should do this. And God goes, yeah, but you don't know the other 15 reasons why I should. It just may be possible, Paul, that you don't know everything. And... Um, I don't. And that God actually knows things that I don't know. And that he does. And that God actually has a plan that may be even greater than what I have in mind. And so God says, I'm going to ignore what you're praying, even though you may be frustrated with me right now, and I'm going to do something else. As a matter of fact, God rarely does things the way we think he ought to. Anybody discovered that? He rarely does it the way we think, and I'll tell you one of the reasons why. I love what Isaiah says. Isaiah says it this way. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. In other words, God's not on the same frequency. You have to understand something. You and I are finite. That means we're very limited. We have a shirt and shelf life. You know, If you think 70 years is a long shelf life, think about God. He's eternal. So the longer I live, believe it or not, the more I'm learning. And the more I'm learning, sometimes it's, re- it's, it's correcting some of the things I used to think. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going, wow, I used to think this, but I can see now that that doesn't work and that's wrong. And, and, I, and I study the Bible every single day. This is going to shock you. I've read this Bible so much, I've studied it at an intense level, and I'm constantly amazed at what I still don't know. As a matter of fact, I'm realizing, I know in my mind, I probably know way more than I've ever known, and yet I feel I know absolutely nothing at times. I'm just going, this is amazing to me. How can you be knowing so much more and feel like you know so much less? And yet that's what starts happening. You realize what you know is like a drop in the bucket. You know, it's very limited. And here we're dealing with a person who's unlimited. He's limitless. He's incomprehensible. He's, you know, infinite. And so here my little puny mind is matching up to God and how many think, wow, I'm just not going to be in the same category as God's going to be at. He's, he's looking over all of human history. He's been engaged in human lives for thousands of years. He knows the human heart and he knows what's best for every life. That's amazing. But you and I go, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do my own thing. God goes, well, I'm just letting you know I have a better plan for you. But if you want to try that, go right on ahead and find out what that's like. I notice God never stops us from making stupid decisions. How many have discovered that? He just does not stop you from doing it. He says, fine, you want to do it that way? Go for it. And then afterwards you go, why did I do that? Anybody ever say to yourself, why in the world did I do that? Anybody ever have that reflection later on, like, why did I do that? That was dumb. Sure. He says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, Augustine was an amazing theologian he wrote and we know a lot about him because he wrote quite prolifically one of the great authors of the fourth century and he was a rascal his mother was a Christian and Augustine had no thought for Christianity he was just doing his own thing he lived a very I would call an unchaste life you know he was he was immoral and he was happy about it he was a happy sinner but yet 
he started struggling because he was a thinker. He goes, where does evil come from? So he started thinking about evil, and, and so he got involved in some crazy group called the Manichaeans, and he was trying to figure out, but then he, he was so smart, he kept asking the right questions, and people didn't have the right answers. So he was like frustrated. Things weren't lining up for him. And um, finally, he decided, you know, I've had it with North Africa, you know, because in the Roman world, the Roman Empire covered all of North Africa, Italy, and you know, all over the place, and he decided, I'm going to Italy. I'm going to Rome. And his mother was a Christian. He was going, oh, God, that's the worst thing that can happen to Augustine if he goes north to Italy. And so she had this beautiful prayer. She says, God, don't let my son go to Italy. I know it's going to destroy his life. How many people, you know, we just really know what's best for our children? Come on now, raise your hands. You know what's best. You're praying, God, please do this for them. And they do the very opposite. Oh, my goodness. No, he was freaked out. He, he left. He decided he's going there anyways. And so then later on, Augustine writes in his biography, it's called the Confessions, it's actually a prayer. He says this, but thou, God, taking thine own secret counsel and noting the real point of her desire, that's Monica's mom, did not grant what she was then asking in order to grant to her the very thing that she had always been asking. Oh, isn't that powerful? In other words, God goes, I really know what you're praying for, Monica. What you really want is your son to know me. Yes, Lord, that's what I really want. But you think that if he goes to Italy, that'll never happen. And so she's crying and weeping and, you know, carrying on and distraught and upset. We're never like this, of course. You know, she's telling God what to do. And God doesn't seem to answer her prayer because Augustine, that little rascal, snuck out, jumped on a boat, and went to Italy anyways. You know, she, she was a determined woman. She went out after him, you know, tried to find him there somewhere in Italy. But despite her prayers, Augustine went to Italy, and it was there that he came to find Jesus Christ because God led him. Eventually, he went to Rome, and then from Rome, he went to Milan. And in Milan, he heard the preaching of Ambrose, who was a great communicator of biblical truth and he was an intellect and a theologian and he began to answer the questions that the Manichaeans couldn't answer and all of a sudden Augustine realized you know what I I had been superficial in my reading of scripture you know because you know the Bible is not written on a scholarly level I don't know if you know that and he was a scholar and he was you know interested in how things were said rather than what was said and he was more caught up in the the method rather than the actual message and God got through to him he became a believer very wonderful thing so Ruth Graham Billy Graham's wife once wrote she said how often has God said no to my earnest prayers that he might answer my deepest longings anybody ever have that experience you prayed for this and God goes no I'm not going to do it that way and then later on God you realize yeah God didn't answer that prayer but he actually did better than that I would have never thought that God could do it this way you know as a matter of fact I, I figured out I knew how God should do it he didn't do it that way. And then God does something else and go, oh, I never thought of that. Hey, that's actually better. Anybody have that experience? I go, Bill, you're a pretty smart God. You know, I would have never thought of that. You know, that's exactly what I really wanted, but I, was, I thought this is what I wanted. You know, one of our problems is we think we know what we want, but we don't always want what's best for us. And God goes, you think you know what you want. If I gave you what you want, it wouldn't make you happy. I'm going to give you what I want you to have because I know this is what you need and it will actually meet the longing and the cry of your heart. Wow, beautiful. I love that. Now, as I was thinking of Mother's Day, 
I was just thinking about the need for godly women in our world today. I am really convinced that the shakers and movers of our world are not always men. I think there's a lot of women. And many times in subordinate roles have really shaped our world in ways we'll never understand. I always think a smart woman. You know, most women, if they're really smart, know how to help their husbands, who sometimes are not so smart. Isn't that true? If you have a good wife, she's going she's gonna to whip you into shape, guys. But, she, but if she's really smart, you won't even know she, you're, she's doing it. That's the truth. I'm serious about this. You won't even know what's happening to you. You will just be getting better, and you'll be going, wow, why am I, I'm really shaping up. And the wife, if she's really smart, she won't be going, I told you so, you know. Don't do that, because it just creates problems in the relationship. But, you know, even a man like the Apostle Paul, I like him. He's, you know, I'm named after him, right, the Apostle Paul? Paul, this is going to shock you. You know, we, we see Paul, he, you know, he was kind of a rascal. He was killing people. You know that, right? He was a murderer. How many know, for God to forgive a murderer, that takes a lot of grace, doesn't it? And he was not just killing anybody. He was actually killing Christians. He was killing the good guys, you know. And then God spoke to him on the road to Damascus and it changed his life. How many almost see Paul going from, you know, this bad guy who was a Pharisee who, you know, had a lot of Bible knowledge to boom, instantaneous, mature believer, great church theologian and church planner. We almost see it almost instantaneously. I want you to know that the Apostle Paul had to go through all of the things that we go through. I come to Christ, I'm a spiritual baby. I need, to, I need to, you know, drink the milk before I eat the meat kind of thing. I need people to come into my life to encourage me, nurture me, support me. And Paul actually had that experience, and I'm going to show you. You probably, have never, you probably haven't thought of it this way. Let me show you a very obscure verse that will help you understand something about the Apostle Paul's life. You may want to write this down. This is, this, you may not have caught on to this, but let me show you from the book of Romans. He's greeting people in the church there, and then he says this, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to, to me too. Paul had a spiritual mom. Woo! How many go, wow, didn't know that. How many knew Paul had a spiritual mom? Some of you might have known this. How many knew that? Wow, you knew that. Great. How many go, this never registered with me, Pastor, that he had a spiritual mother? You guys are being honest. Isn't that great? What am I saying to you? It shows me that somebody as great as the Apostle Paul had to have a spiritual mother to develop spiritually. That shows me how powerful and important it is to have people who will nurture and mentor our lives. Isn't that great? I love this. You know, when I first became a Christian, I had a lady named Evelyn. She was like a spiritual mom to me. You know, she was probably 30 years older than me, but she really, you know, you know I was alone, and she really spoke into my life and encouraged me. I thank God for her. You know, she was there for me. You know, sometimes I was going through a hard time. She could tell I was a bit discouraged. She would speak into my life. She worked with me. You know, I worked as a cook in a restaurant. She was a waitress. And uh, she could pick up. She know, you know, moms can really pick up the vibes of young people. When you're, a, when you're an experienced person, you can pick up on people, right? Aren't you glad for people like that who come alongside of you and encourage you? Well, the Apostle Paul had a spiritual mom. And we find her name, I don't know what her name is, but I'm sure Paul knew her name, and I'm sure he deeply loved and appreciated her. And even though he doesn't mention her by name in this letter, he was greeting Rufus, who's probably a leader in the church there in Rome. He said, you know, greet your mom. You know what? She was a mom to me. Wow. Let me, in my mind, I think three words summarize 
from three different texts what a mom is like, and I'm gonna just give them to you. First of all, I think the most powerful word to describe a mother is one who comforts children, a comforter. Isn't that neat? As a matter of fact, when God describes himself, this is, gonna, this is gonna really mess with your heads a little bit. Are you guys ready to expand your thinking about God? How many are ready? I wanna expand my thinking about God tonight. Here goes the first thing. You know, in the book of Genesis, it says he created the male and female and he made them in the image of God. I'm convinced that just, you know, let's take the gender, the male gender. The male gender doesn't totally reflect who God is. Did you know that? You see, even though we call him our father, I want to show you something, that God has the nature that he's put in women. So when you think of God, most of the time we think of God as being strong, warrior-like. You know, actually the Old Testament paints God as a warrior. I don't know if you know that. You know, he's got a lot of masculine, dominant traits in the Old Testament, but he, there's also feminine traits of God in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament. Until you put the two natures together, both what men are like and what women are like, now you're getting a sense of what God is like. You gotta, we're, we don't totally, you know, guys, you don't totally reveal the nature of God. Women, you don't totally reveal the nature of God. It's when we put the two genders together that we totally reveal the nature of God. Listen to what he says in the book of Isaiah 66. It says here, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. The second word is caring. How many know mothers, generally women are deeper and better nurturers? How many say that's probably true? I'm Generally speaking. Now, I mean, there's been some moms that are really tough. Let's face it. But generally speaking, moms tend to be a little more nurturing, a little more, uh, you know, gracious, more gentle with their children, right? Not always true. Sometimes the guy can be even more gentle than the woman, but Boy, that's really not the norm. It's generally the woman who is more nurturing and, and more gentle. And this is what Paul says to the believers. He says, you know, we were like this in Second, uh, First Thessalonians. He said, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. It's the idea of a nursing mother. Can you, can you see the picture of this mother nursing this baby? How many know, you know, women who are nursing their children tend to be very gentle and tender towards them? Isn't that right? There's a bonding that's happening with them. Paul says, that's what we were like with you when we were there as, as leaders in your, in your midst. You guys had just come to Christ. We treated you like a newborn infant. How many know when you have a newborn infant? It's a lot of work. How many know that's true? And, you, and it's, it's 124-hour care. You cannot just you know, neglect these little guys because they won't make it, right? You have to care for them at a very intense level. Paul says, that's how we cared for you. Now, I want to say something to you. I don't know what your picture of God is. I want you to think of the most gentle, the sweetest woman you've ever met, the, the most nurturing person you've ever met. Anybody fasten that person in your mind? Anybody can think of a person like that? How many, you got somebody in your mind right now? The most nurturing, gentle, the kindest woman you've ever met. And I'm gonna say something. God is more gentle, more loving, and more nurturing than that person. How many say, that's my picture of God? Raise your hand. You see God that way. You, look, just put your hand way up, way up. Look around the room. Most of us don't see God like that. Half of us do. Isn't that an amazing thought? See, if you see God like that, all of a sudden, you, what happens when you see God in that way? Now you feel what? Loved and supported. Isn't that true? 
You know, a lot of people see God as being upset and frustrated. I, if I had some of you guys raise your hand, you'd probably see God as being uptight, frustrated, and mad all the time. You know, like he wants to kick the dog or something because he's so upset about what human beings are doing on earth. And I have this picture of here's God, the most gentle, loving, caring person. Now, that's one side of God. Now I'll swing you over to the other side. You know, when God wants to get tough, I don't want to be upset. I don't want to get him in upset with me because he's a warrior okay so I have another view of God as well I have this major big view of God I don't just see God as well you know I can do anything I want and you know I'm just going to have a nice you know you know God's going to start stroking me you know like no problem Paul you know sometimes I think God's going to go yeah but I can be the tough guy too and I can discipline you because I really do love you and you're not going to get away with this I'm going to you know deal with something in your life so I have that picture of God as well how many probably have do you have that picture of God how many have that picture of God as well he's a father that's going to discipline you when you you know when you're getting out of line and you're doing something that's destructive to yourself and to others so now all of a sudden we got a broader view of who God is right how important is that let me move on. The third word is the mother's influence in the child's life. Calvin Miller uh, is a Christian writer, and he shares this amazing story. You know, his dad abandoned him when he was four years old. How many, you know, dropout dads? They're not there for their children. Absentee fathers. You know, that's what the culture is happening today. It's really sad. And uh, wherever that happens, wherever children lose a father, they're more susceptible to living a promiscuous lifestyle and getting in trouble with the law. The whole thing goes skyrocketing. You know, actually, children need a, a father figure in their life. Now, sometimes it doesn't happen. You lose the father figure. Well, you know, a single mom, she's raising these kids, and Calvin Miller said, I really love my mom, but, you know, she was a no-nonsense lady. And one day, you know, he's a teenager. He saves up his money. He turns 16. He goes out, and he buys a car. The only problem was the car was a beauty, he said. It looked great. The only problem was... It didn't start. You'd have to give it a little push to get her running. And then he said it didn't have any brakes. And he'd spent all of his money on this vehicle. He had no money to repair it. <clears throat> so his, he comes home. He's all excited. He tells his mom, look what I got, mom. Look at this car. Come for a ride. But, you know, he had forgotten. He had turned the car off. And then he goes, oh, by the way, mom, to get her going, we'll have to give her a little push. And so here's his little mom. You know, she's pushing the car to get it started. This is back. You can already tell this is we're talking a long time ago, right? So you're pushing the car. The car starts. I, I've had that experience. When I was first dating my wife, that's what happened. My car had problems. And if you gave it a push, you know, down a hill, she'd start her up and off we'd go, you know? Anybody relate to this? Oh, okay. So Calvin Miller says, hey, Mom, jump in. We're ready to go. It's started now. She gets in the vehicle, and they're rolling along, and they get to the first stop sign, and sure enough, no brakes zipping right through the stop sign. The mom says, okay, son, where did you get this car? And so we told her, take us right there. And she comes storming out of that car, and she got whoever the salesperson was, and she says, listen, do you realize you sold a car to a miner that won't start and won't stop? You know, and she, she got in this guy's space. They got their money back. That's all I got to say about that. She got the money back. So Calvin Miller says, I had such a respect for my mom that every girl that I dated, I wanted to make sure that, you know, she was going to meet my mom because if this was the person I'm going to get married to, they got to meet my mom's approval. 
Uh, he was a pretty smart guy in that sense. You know, at least he had, you go, yeah, he's just a mommy's boy. No, he had a little wisdom. You know, older people see things that younger people can't see. You know, because later on when he bought a different vehicle, he said, yeah, I bought a different vehicle. I paid one-tenth of the price. You know, it had a starter and it worked and had brakes and it worked, but it didn't have the looks of the other car. You know, but it was practical, right? And isn't that what it's all about? So his mom, one day he takes, he says, I brought Barbara home. That's the girl he eventually married. And she said, Calvin, this is the girl for you. He goes, how do you know, Mom? She goes, look, she loves you. And son, I've loved you for 23 years. You are creative and artistic. And believe me, you're going to need a lot of special understanding." Every poet needs a pragmatist to keep their feet on solid ground. So the mom knew that where he was deficient, this young woman was able to help him. She would be a great compliment to his life. And you know, he had enough wisdom to marry that girl. Do you know, I would say this to every young person. If you're thinking of getting married, you know, you have to have people that are older that you trust and respect. And you, you kind of have to bring that person through the gauntlet you know, that's what I did. I, I had people, I had everybody meet Patty before I married her. I wanted to make sure, you know, that they approved of this selection. That's important. You want the people you love to affirm your decision. And if they say to you, hey, this may not be the right person for you, you better pay attention. Because they have wisdom that you lack as a younger person. And I think in, in our culture today, we don't listen to older people. We just think they don't know any better. You know, but that's a tragedy because then we make terrible mistakes. But how many, when you're listening to Calvin Miller, appreciate the wisdom and love of his mother? You're saying, man, I long for such a love or I'm thankful for having that kind of a mother. And I recognize that this may not be your experience. But you know what I like? Um, But it can be, sorry, I'm going the wrong way here. Just give me a sec. I'll get it. Okay, but it can be your legacy to your children. What am I saying? I'm saying you may not have had the kind of person, unless a mother like that or a father like that, but you can make a choice tonight. You can say, I want to become that person. Isn't that true? Right, you can. And uh, you have to kind of make up your mind. You know, I, I, I had, my dad had a lot of good things going in his life, and he had not so good things going on in his life. And I had to make some decisions. I was going to follow the good things he did, and I was going to consciously think about the things he didn't do well, and I had to decide I'm not going to do those things. I had to work at it. Do you understand that? Because, listen, automatically, we have a default switch inside of us. You don't know this, but our default switch, it goes something like this. What I see, I default to. When we grew up in a home, we're, we're trained by that home. And that's why I want to focus in a little bit on how we need to train other people. And so what does it mean to be a mother in the Lord? I want to talk about that. Or what does it mean to be a spiritual father? This is what this message is about. Man, I can't believe this much time has gone by. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the text and make a few comments on it, and then we're going to come to a close. Turn to Titus chapter 2, verse 3 to 5. Let's read. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. If you read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he's telling you how older men should behave and how younger men should behave. And he's basically telling them how to be a godly person. 
Verse three, he says this about women. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. In other words, how to live a godly life. To be reverent means how to show respect towards God. You know, I revere God. That's the idea. What does it mean to really revere God? To revere God means that I have such a respect for God and his wisdom and understanding that I'm gonna do what he's asking me to do. In other words, I'm gonna live like George Schwab says, to do what's right in his eyes, not in my own eyes. Is that the way you and I live? To do what's right in God's eyes? Or are we just doing our own thing? Because I'll tell you right now, if you do your own thing, you're not gonna be a very godly person. You're not gonna be an amazing, a consistently powerful example of how a person should live life. And I believe that's what changes our lives. He goes on to say, not to be slanderous or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children. How many think that's fascinating? We actually have to be trained to love other people. And a lot of people have never had this training. They have grown up in an environment they've never been trained like this. And though that's why it's so important as mature believers that we're willing to, you know, say, listen, I'm going to give up, you know, comforts and, and doing my own thing so I can invest my life in nurturing and mentoring and helping other people learn how to love other people. You have to train people to do that. Training is a lot of hard work. You know, parenting is the toughest job in the world. If you've never done it, you have no understanding. It, it brings the greatest joy and the greatest pain all in the same thing. And when you love people that deeply and you see them making stupid decisions, it breaks your heart. It really does. It'll rip you right up on the inside. Then it says to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home. Isn't that amazing? Instead of being a busybody, doing all kinds of things you shouldn't be doing, to be busy at home, to be kind. You've got to teach people to be kind. Isn't it amazing when an older woman can see a younger woman just getting married? Because, you know, let's face it, you get married to this person, you know, and there's stars in your eyes and this is the most wonderful person and they've been thoughtful and they've wooed you and then you get married and all of a sudden they're on to the next conquest and they've kind of forgotten about you. I'm just kind of describing how married life usually works and you know, they're so busy doing something else and you realize, I thought I married this unselfish, thoughtful, kind, wonderful person and now I realize I married this stupid idiot who's, you know, has no interest in me now that they think they've got me and they're ignoring me and, and so they're hurt and when you're hurt you usually say things that you shouldn't say back, right? You kind of say, you know, nasty little comments, you know, because you're wounded. Come on, a lot of people get wounded and when we're wounded we say things that are painful and hurtful because we're hurt. Hey, listen, I've been around people for a long time. I, I watch this in action. And what happens then is, you know, you've got this, you know, this destructive behavioral pattern happening in this relationship. And an older woman comes along and sees the younger woman saying these caustic, you know, depreciating remarks to her husband, takes the young woman aside and says, listen, a wise woman builds her house up, but a foolish one tears it down. So what do I do? Well, you can't, you can't talk to them like that. It's not going to fly. You know, if you're a really smart woman, you already know that you don't have to do it that way. You can actually help this poor foolish guy to get on track. You know, some of you saw that movie, you know, Big Fat Greek Wedding. And there's a line in that movie. I don't care for this line, but there's a lot of truth to it. Remember, the woman is wanting to marry this guy, and she talks to her mom, and she says, he's never going to let me marry this guy. He's not Greek. And she goes, yeah, dad's the head. He goes, yeah, he may be the head, but I'm the neck. 
You know, the mom says, I'm the neck, and I can get the head to move whichever way I want it to. And there's a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of truth to that, because if you're a wise woman, you just know exactly which buttons to push at the right time, right? Girls are looking at me, Pastor, you're telling us these guys are secrets now. (laughs) But, you know, I know how this works. I've been married for a long time, and I've observed a lot of things. All right. So... Let me just, you know, a couple of comments here. Regarding their tongue, they're not to slander others. That's pretty important. We have to be very careful with our mouths. We say a lot of things that cause a lot of damage. And we better be careful what we're saying about people. Because a lot of times we may, we may think we know the whole story. And I, I've, as I get older... You know, I'm more careful not to just fly off and go do something. Because, you know, when you're younger, you tend to do that. Oh, I'm all upset. I'm, you look at something, you think you got all the answers, and then you run into that situation. And then when you find out the rest of the story, you go, what an idiot. I should have kept my mouth shut and stayed out of it, right? Anybody ever do that? Okay. Sometimes when you see a problem and you think you, you, you're looking at something and you think this smells like, you know, like this, it's got to be this, and then you find out later they were actually trying to do the opposite of what you thought they were doing. And you're, and you're reaming them out for doing the right thing. And then when you find that out, you feel about this high. So I think, you know, we have to be careful. We don't say things. And, you know, a lot of times people will tell us information and we'll think, well, that's got to be the truth. Listen, folks, I've been a pastor so long, I've heard so many sides of a story after a while I go, Lord, just show me what's really going on here because, you know, everybody's invested in the story. You never know what's really going on. You know, you're just praying that God will bring things to light. Um, The other thing is oftentimes as older people, I'm gonna pick on the older people now, we tend to be, you know, focus on people's faults, especially our children's. We're, we're, We're quick to point out what they're doing wrong. Can I just encourage you? You want to bring about change in a person's life? Don't just focus on what they're doing wrong, okay? You, what you need to do is identify what they're doing right and focus on that. And if you will affirm people and what they're doing right, because a lot of times when people are doing the wrong thing, what, what do they really want? They want attention. They want someone to know that they, they care about them. So, you know, if you start affirming what they're doing right, it's amazing how much more how much harder they'll try to keep doing the right thing. And if you keep affirming the right behavior, you know what happens? They don't have time to do the wrong behavior. Right? Come on. How many remember a bad teacher? Raise your hand. You had a bad teacher once. Anybody have a bad teacher? Come on. And then how many here in this room can say, but I had a good teacher too. Anybody remember the good teacher? Can I just point out, what was the difference between the bad teacher and the good teacher? Yeah, the good teacher paid attention, they cared about you, and they focused in on what you were doing right, and they affirmed that, and they believed in you. The bad teacher ignored you, uh, they criticized you, they told you you were an idiot, you know, you'd never do anything, you'd never amount to anything. How many get a little difference? See what I'm getting at? The power of words. But here's the last thing I want to focus in on. It says, regarding their thirst, these women are not to be addicted to much wine. Do you know the priests could never drink wine in the temple? in the Old Testament. Why was that? Because the, 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 prob- you know, the, the element of actually drinking too much was always there. And the problem was you could get addicted. And can you imagine trying to serve God in, a, in a, an addicted state of mind? You're intoxicated. 
How many know that's probably, you know, you're going to do a lot of, you're going to say a lot of stupid things and do a lot of stupid things. So they were not allowed to do that. The potential for disgracing their office was higher. Now as a function of the mature woman in the Lord to perform her godly function in a godly manner, she had to be free from addiction. So you say, what is, what is addiction? And I'm going to close with this. James Houston says it this way. I, I know, we went through a lot here. Being so completely possessed that one is enslaved, deprived of inner freedom, and ultimately of personal dignity. What happens when we become addicted is we're stripped as a person. It is the ghastly process of losing one's soul. How many go, that's sad. Is that a powerful definition by James Houston? I think it is. You know, he goes on to say, unless one wrestles to overcome the addictive habit, no change is possible, only destruction. Addiction then means being caught, taken possession of, and then destroyed, but it requires the first step, namely the willingness to be taken. You know, it's, it's very simple. What you need to hear is this. We have a society that seems to forgive everybody of everything. Now, Right? It wasn't like that before, but we've gone to the other side of the pendulum. We've swung too far to the other side. And what we're telling people today is it's, it's not your fault that you are the way you are. Isn't that what we hear in our society all the time? And that's why, the most, that's why our society never gets better. Because we never take responsibility for our behavior. And God's word makes us do that. I cannot, you know, I can never say to anybody, well, I'm addicted and I don't even know how I got there. Yeah, you do. You made a choice earlier in the process to do something that you were told it was probably not healthy to do, but you did it anyways. And you just kept doing it and making excuses for yourself until you became addicted. And that addiction actually cost you more than you ever want to bargain for. Because once you're addicted, you will begin to serve the addiction even at the destruction of yourself and everybody around you. And that's really a good definition of idolatry. See how we go full circle. So we have a choice tonight. And it goes something like this. God, will I take personal responsibility for my life? And where I have failed, I will ask you to forgive me. And I will ask your spirit to come and invade my life and deliver me from the power of addiction. I believe God can do that, number one. Number two, I'm gonna have you do something now. All of you in this room that you say, you know, I'm a spiritually mature believer, I want you just to stand for a moment. Just stand. You're a spiritually mature believer. Just stand up. You see yourself as a spiritually, come on, you've been a Christian for a while now and you, you see yourself as a spiritually mature believer. All right, okay. All right, it's good. Go ahead and sit down. How many here you say, you know, Pastor, I am not a spiritually mature person. I'm not a spiritually mature believer. Doesn't mean you're not a mature person. It just means you're not a spiritually mature person. I need someone to help me in this journey to become a stronger person. You stand up. That's you. That's who you are. Okay. All right. No, you guys are being honest. That's authentic. I love that. Now, if you both feel, both of them, if you still feel this way, you say you're mature, but now you feel like, I don't know how mature I am, and you're standing up, stand up. It's really important you do this right now. Just stand up. Be, 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 be willing to admit it. Awesome. This is great. Now, I'm going to ask a question of you guys that are standing now. The other people, you kind of look around. It's gotten, I don't know, some of you have said for, for two things. That's okay. Look around here. I want to ask this question now. How many here you're saying to yourself, I have someone mentoring me right now? Sit down. 
Someone's mentoring you right now. Just sit down. They're mentoring you. Come on. You guys kind of know this or you don't know this. Somebody's helping you. Somebody's in my life. Someone's mentoring me. Someone's speaking into my life. Okay, that's good. Now, the rest of you that are still standing, did you see some of the people that were standing earlier that were mature people? Did you know some of those people? No? Okay. Talk to me afterwards. We'll try to hook you up. That's what Mark's got a ministry here to help people develop, okay? Here's what I'm going to say to you. We want you to develop. We want you to mature. We want you to grow strong. Right? We need help. You know, some people go, why go to church? This is the reason why we go to church. We have to be in community and we have to help one another. Amen? That's powerful. That's what it's all about. So I'm going to pray right now for you guys that are standing. You can be seated now. Thank you for your honesty. I'm going to pray tonight. We're closing right now. I want to pray that God will help you. That God will help you grow. That God will help you develop. That God will bring mentors in your life. I want you to pray. That's a very important prayer. You know, it's important to have people in your life. My pastor, you know, he was a good guy. He took about five or six of us young people under his wing. But it was on his terms. He met with us. He said, listen, I'll pray with you guys and share my heart with you on Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. You know, I worked Friday nights late because I, I worked a late shift cooking. But I didn't want to miss that 8 o'clock time. So my pastor would speak into our lives and he would pray with us. You know, I'm here today because he was like a father to me. And when he died... This is going to sound really weird to you. But I'd only known him a year and a half. I felt closer to him than my earthly father. Because there's something that happens when you have a person who is what I call has disinterested interest. In other words, they have nothing to gain from this relationship but pouring their life into you. And he did. I'm a pastor today because of him. When he died, I wept so hard that his biological daughter walked over to me sat down next to me and she goes Paul I know that this is as hard for you as it is for me because she knew he was like a dad to me that's how powerful these relationships become it's moving to see our lives changed by someone who will care deeply for us don't you want to be one of those kind of people that you can care so deeply for a person that you can actually influence and shape their life for Christ? Isn't that powerful? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters tonight. Maybe there's some that don't know you. But as they listened to these words, they heard the heart of God. They were touched in their spirits. They're getting a feeling tonight, Father, that you are as gentle as the most gentle the most nurturing mother, the most affirming person they've ever met. And yet on the other side, that you are so firm with us that you will discipline us, that you will speak into our lives, that you're not going to let us get away with anything. I thank you that you don't not let me get away with a single thing. you got your finger in my soul. If I even think to do the wrong thing, you're pushing, saying, what are you thinking, Paul? I'm so thankful that you're like that. 
And I'm so thankful for the people that you brought into my life as a young person and spoke into my life and nurtured my soul and mentored me. And I thank you that I've had that privilege of doing that to others and that, Lord, tonight, we all have that privilege. We can either be a mentor, we can be a spiritual mom, we can be a spiritual dad, or we can open our hearts and say, Lord, I want that. Would you lead the right people into my life to nurture and encourage and mentor me to become the man or the woman that you're calling me to become? I pray that you'll bring connectedness, Lord, that people in this room will, you know, have seen people standing up and walk up and say, hey, you know what? I'd like you to be like a spiritual parent to me or I would like you, I'd like to, you know, be able to mentor you. And I just pray that you will bring about these relational connectedness because we need to be trained. We need to be taught how to love. We need to be taught how to be kind. We need to be taught differently than maybe the way we were instructed as a child. We need, we're beginning a new journey with you, Father. We need this process in our life. And I pray that this will be the beginning in many of our lives to grow in these areas. That we'll take on this responsibility that, you know, one person cannot mentor a whole church. We need many, many mentors. This morning, so many in the church stood up and said, yes, I'm a spiritual person. I'm willing to mentor others. Wow, was that ever powerful? And I saw it again tonight. Lord, help us to connect with each other, to help each other in our spiritual journey. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.